Welcome into God's Word During Exile. This is a podcast in which a group of pastors get together and we study the Word of God together. Uh, we are still traversing through the book of Revelation, and uh, we are almost to the home stretch. We've made it, guys. How does it feel to only have another three months to go? It's more like six months, but it feels pretty nice. Yeah. Email, email Michael Natal at God's Word During Exile at gmail.com. All one word. <laughs> No apostrophe. Don't put the all one word part in there. Yeah, it's not. Maybe that's what's been going on too, because I haven't gotten any emails recently. So they sending them all to God's word during exile, all one, all one word. word. <laughs> yeah, I'm you know sure what? Maybe what while we're maybe while we're studying today, I'll open up a new account. <laughs> God's word during exile, all, all one, one word. word. Just so that we can cover our bases. That seems really fair. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, now I'm actually curious. I wonder if they will let me open an email that is that long. (laughs) Challenge accepted. Well, we'll see how it goes, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, So, yeah, welcome in. Hopefully, everyone's doing pretty well. Um, We are in the season of Lent. How is everybody's pancake feeds? Oh, so good. Ours too. Do you do pancakes from scratch? Or do you do like the the crusties mix? This episode sponsored by crusties. I think Mike yeah. just gave you the you're insulting me by even asking that question. You think that I would use pre mixed batter? You you do <laughs> you do them from scratch then. Ben is a pancake snob. So anyway, we <laughs> served like we served like twenty pounds worth of bacon. It was amazing. What? Wow, yeah. that's insane. We were only 13 pounds of bacon, so you defeated us. Defeated. Did you guys do bacon and sausage? No, just bacon and pancakes. Oh, man, we did we did bacon and sausage. It was wild. Yeah. How many people did you have show up? Holy uh, God, we had like fifth we had like 15 volunteers serve somewhere around like 70 plus people. Wow. Yeah, it was great. So it was a lot of fun. We we had a good time and uh Pancakes were shared and um, confession was had and people were encouraged by it. It was good. It was a good time. Yeah. And Tyler, are you going to do a, a chili feed anytime soon and make some hot good. And spicy chilies? It's actually hilarious that you mentioned that. Our chili cook-off is the 20th, so like oh, nice. uh, nine days. So if any of you guys want to fly out and uh, be a Breaking judge, flights. you're more <laughs> <laughs> we would love to have you guys as judges. So that give me a little, more, little bit more lead time. Maybe I can make that happen next year. So, do you think? Mm-hmm. Like, is it more challenging out on the East Coast than in the than in the Midwest? Do you have it's, to amp up the different. spice more? It's different. Well, so I have. Hold on. <laughs> so I think you basically smoked everyone in the Midwest. So now I I work for this company now, Ocean State Pepper Company, and they have a thing called Devil's Dust. And essentially what it is, is it's seven of the spiciest chilies that they can grow. So it's ghost chilies, Carolina Reapers, Seven Pot, Naga, Scorpions, uh, Devil's Tongue, Habanero, and Fish Peppers. And essentially they dehydrate it and grind it up and make it into like a powder dude this stuff is nuclear so i i just used a little bit of this stuff and but now i only make a little bit because nobody actually eats it so i don't want to waste all the chili so i make like i don't know four or five ladles worth and that's it because everybody just wants like a little thumb what is it thimble that's the word thimble full of it so there's no point to to matt see what he thinks yeah Matt, here, reach through the here, Matt. <laughs> <Got it. laughs> that just, looks amazing. Wow. You should just dump a bunch of that powder into a plain white envelope and send it to Matt. No return address. See what happens. Oh, man. <laughs> That's like anthrax. Yeah. Terrible. Yeah. I'm just dumping it in the pot. I'm not even questioning that. <laughs> nice. All right, well, now that we've officially all come off the rails, let's bring it back. And uh, Matt, I believe, oh, 
just to let everybody know so that you can prep before Mike gets to it and reading. Uh, we're going to read Revelation chapter 21. We'll read verses 15 through 27. All right, Matt, why don't you open us in prayer? All right, let's do it. Lord, we thank you for uh, all the blessings that we have in our life. We think of the good food that uh, we're, we've been talking about enjoying and and uh, and that there are so many good things in this world that you've provided for us. And we, uh, we're going to get to hear about more good things that you are providing for us uh, for all of eternity. And we just pray that this would be an exciting uh, journey looking at these things. We also just ask your prayer for uh, people all around the world, especially those that are not enjoying so many of the good things right now. We think of the Ukrainian refugees and those who are uh, at war, and we just pray, Lord, for peace. We pray that you'd uh, protect people's lives and that people would uh, trust in you during this uh, difficult and tumultuous time. And so, Lord, uh, may you be at work in your grace and in your power and have mercy upon us, we uh, we pray, and uh, may your Holy Spirit guide us now as we dig into your word that you would be at work in our heart to lead us to repentance and faith, that we might experience all the riches of, of these good things you are providing for those who believe in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, today we are reading from Revelation chapter 21. We're going to pick up in verse 15 and read all the way through the end. And I'm reading out of the English Standard Version today in Jesus' name. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city lies four square and its length uh, the same as its width. <clears throat> and he measured the city with the, his rod, 1200 stadia. Its length and its width and its height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth uh, chris, chrysoprase. You guys have, when you read that, you got straight through it with no problems. That was like super <laughs> fluty for we me. We were making it up. Chrysoprase. Time with some of these. The eleventh uh, jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the seat street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. See, I thought I muted myself before I blew my nose. Nah, and nah. then I was like, I was <laughs> just so amped up to say thanks be to God. So I apologize to all of our <laughs> listeners for getting that nice honker going. Uh, you're very welcome. So yeah, thanks, Mike, for showing me how it's done. Very good. That one uh, gem mentioned, yeah, Chrysoprostis is the Greek. So just so that people have an idea, it's, I guess it's a precious stone of a golden green color. That gives you kind of a picture. The chrysoprase? Yeah. I also see it's like the color of a leek or a translucent golden green. Okay. I really don't think of leeks as being very precious or attractive. I'm going to be honest. Mm. Yeah. It's just me. Well, you know, they, it was uh, one of the things that the Israelites wanted back in Egypt. They're like, we'll go back to being slaves so we can have leeks. Yeah. So the, the I, other I don't one know that we would value leeks so highly as to endure slavery. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it the seems like a really bad trade. Bad trade. The one that really stumped me was that uh, Jacinth or Jacinth, but. 
comes from the Greek word huakinthos uh, or something like that. So um, it's probably not a hard J, but it's more like a hard C kind of K sound there. So, but that one's uh, dark blue verging towards black, apparently. Mm. Uh, it's also the name of a flower. So maybe some of you know a good way to pronounce some of these and you can let us know. <laughs> Yeah, just write it in the comments. <laughs> yeah, just because <laughs> I'm real good at interpreting. Send us a little audio mark. and we'll play it next time. I think I think the point we can make here is that it's like real purdy like. Like that's how you should just <laughs> do it, right? So, Doesn't matter if you can pronounce the words, just know that it's real purdy like. Okay. It's real. So nice. uh <laughs> um so yeah, looking at that on that hula kentas, just think hyacinth. Here you go. So um, that would be another way to to translate that. Um, does that help at all or no? Yeah, it does. It yeah, gives nice. you some idea of what those foundation stones might might actually look so like. We get you know, quite a variety of uh, different colors and shininess, and and uh, it would be yeah. I mean, absolutely stunning to see most most of the beautiful colors that we could imagine from nature and beautiful stones and things represented there mm-hmm. all right so let's let's pull back a little bit and start in 15 uh what we've got here is the angel that was there with john he goes out and measures uh jerusalem right uh it says that the city lies four square which i'm, I'm guessing is is a cube right four square oh best game ever well they're playing with a basketball when you miss with that and take it to the dome that hurts man yeah or the gut oh. yeah <laughs> not really well i guess you know cube would depend on if the if you're taking into account the height of the walls or such but it's square mm-hmm. but it does cube i is, mean cube is three dimensional. later in 16 we find out that it's it's a, a cube though so you don't have to make me look bad ben <laughs> just because it, we know it's a cube later so ben's right yeah so four square length and height length and width are the same but we find out later it's also a cube. uh well, the the wall 144 cubits is not this is that equivalent to 12,000 stadium no but if you look just so a then it's cube if you benjamin benjamin baker <laughs> If you look just a few words before verse 17, you will find it says it's length and width and height are equal, Ben. Don't you sass me, boy. It's equal. Fight, okay, <laughs> fight, fight, fight. <laughs> All right, wow. So when was the last time you guys measured anything with Stadia? Has it been a while? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah never. Actually. Anybody got a good maths conversion for us there of, of how big this city we're, we're talking about is? Uh, a stadium was like 607 feet or 185 meters. So this would be 1,380 miles. That's a, that's a little bit of a city. 13, 1,400 miles wide and, and long and, and high, yeah. like a cube. <laughs> Cubic that's, miles? That's a little <laughs> bit bigger than the Temple Mount, don't you think? In, just, a, just a touch. But, I mean, way, way, way bigger than the Temple Mount in modern-day Jerusalem, right? Just so you're picturing all of this, right? This would be not only beyond the Temple Mount, this would be beyond the walls of what used to be Jerusalem. This would also be way beyond the whole land area and out into the sea, Right? uh this is massive so how big is it again in miles one one thousand three hundred and eighty miles so that is bigger than the entire state of rhode island how how many rhode island is one thousand two hundred and fourteen square miles look at that wow so So that's a good picture it's bigger than rhode island as many things are not bigger than Montana, though. Uh, not even close. No. <laughs> not, not even close. So. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I'm almost positive, and somebody can fact check me on, on fact check me on this. 
I am nearly positive that there are cattle ranches in Montana larger than the state of Rhode Island. No, I would I would guess that's probably true. Yeah. So just in terms of area, this would be um one million nine hundred four thousand four hundred square miles. Because hmm. it's that one thousand three hundred eighty is all the sides, mm-hmm. you know, length and width. So to to oh. square that. So you're you're talking about like one million nine hundred four thousand four hundred square miles. So it's as if you would take all of Rhode Island and make it into a square, and that then it's that. <laughs> so, so the the kind of the point that we're getting at here is like this is this is far beyond uh, something that is physical, right? Yeah. So we're not talking about a a literal physical city. Um, you know, as we think about like some, some people think about, oh, the, they may say, well, the temple and the, you know, needs to be rebuilt and this and that. Um, but the dimensions that are given to us, not just here, uh, in the new heavens and the new earth, but also, you know, like we see in Ezekiel and Zechariah with the measuring of the temple and so on and so forth. Like when they talk about a new temple and they give the dimensions, like it is like, you couldn't physically put it in Jerusalem. <laughs> It'd be way too big. Right. So so all of that is just to, to emphasize that it's giving us a picture of of something. John is speaking in um you know in pictures and figurative language. We are not meant to take it literalistically. So by the way, I was just doing a little bit of quick searching here and this would be way beyond Cairo, Egypt, and Baghdad, Iraq, way out into the Mediterranean. I mean, we're talking, this is absolutely massive, encompassing a number of countries and seas and everything. So, I mean, yeah, way, way, way beyond what, you know, modern, the whole nation of Israel is. Yeah. And so, and this yeah, is the so that gives us a picture of the, you know, the immensity of a kind of, you know, filling the earth kind of a, a thing. And then again, you know, we're, it's not meant to be a, understood literalistically because we remember too that, you know, the new Jerusalem, that's what John sees coming down out of heaven adorned as a bride for her husband. So here we have these descriptions are, really descriptions of the the church and the the 12,000 and the 144 again those are significant numbers right you have the number 12 in both of those things um and we have a connection too of that 144 cubits to you know, like John's use of the 144,000 uh previously in revelation in which pictured the the church militant the church on earth and the whole the idea of that is the completeness all Christians, the entire church, uh, between the ascension and second coming of Christ. And so with these numbers, too, describing the city, which is the people of God, the church, we have, this is the fullness of the people of, of God. Um, you know, so in the new heavens and the new earth, yeah, you have all Christians of all times and all places uh, united together as one, because right now we're separated you know, between the church militant, which are those Christians who are on on earth, and uh, the church triumphant, which are those Christians who uh, dwell before the throne of God in heaven, awaiting the resurrection. So when we when we die, uh, you know, this side of Christ's return, we are transferred from the church militant to the church triumphant. Uh, in the new heavens and the new earth, the entirety of the church, there's no more church militant, right? Because sin has been done away with. So we are all part of then the church triumphant, that single uh, body of Christ encompassing all believers of all times, all places. And so we get that picture of completeness with the 12,000 and the 144. Um, so again, not meant to be literally mapped out, but completeness, fullness, um, all the people of God. So, you know, 
it's kind of like, uh, you know, so during Lent here, you know, I, I'm doing a, a series through the book of Jonah, you know, and we just looked at Jonah, you know, in the belly of the great fish and then, you know, being vomited up on the, the dry land. And I just, you know, told my people, you know, in the resurrection, we can, you know, we could go ask Jonah, say, hey, how, what was that even like? I mean, you know, what, what were you doing in the, what did you do for three days and three nights in the belly of a fish? What was that like, man? Or what was it like to be vomited out on a dry, onto the land there? Anyways, point is that, you know, we'll be there with Jonah and Adam and Eve and Moses and Elijah and prophets and apostles and all believers uh, from there on all times, and all places, you know, this is the fullness of the people of God. We had that picture of the 144,000, right? The, the picture of the church militant uh, before marching. And now we've got this, you know, 144 number coming up again. And, and it seems like a real connection then that this church that was in, in this military march through the, through the world on mission to save people from uh from eternal punishment right and to go to war with our with the enemies of mankind sin death and the devil right uh we've we've got that same church now being pictured as this new city mm -hmm. and temple and and it's a picture then of the the war is over and now you're safe and now you're in your home and and uh and i'm i'm thinking even more maybe intimately about the power of that kind of a message as we think about the situation in ukraine right now with what is it basically about two million women and children and old men that have fled that country now and are homeless and and wandering during the midst of this war and man this war is awful and uh and when we think about the spiritual war that the church is in in this world there's so many trials and tribulations there's so much uh, loneliness and hurt and rejection and and humiliation and all of this suffering in this world in this life and so that you know the picture of the church militant is is powerful in its own right, but it is so relieving to have this other picture of being able to go home and be at peace in this place of beauty and God's presence and safety, uh, provision, like all those people that was just wish they could go home and be safe. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, thinking about, about it too, in the context of, you know, of Revelation, you know, as John is writing to the church in enduring persecution and such, you know, this is a, this is a comfort uh, to the people of God as they, as they endure the various trials and sufferings of this life too, an assurance that, you know, though they may lose everything in this life, including their, their physical lives, um, they have the comfort that there they will be in the new heavens and the new earth. And, and those that have gone before them and who have died, you know, loved ones or, or, uh, you know, teachers in the church and so on who have, you know, either died of natural causes or have been put to death uh, through persecution and so on. They're there too. And so, you know, there's kind of a comfort there that, you know, even though we, may lose everything in this life in this age there we have it all with all the saints of god together for eternity in the age to come and so it gives a it gives a comfort uh in the midst of trial and suffering this in this life whether that trial and suffering comes by way of persecution or just comes by you know the effects of of sin uh, the decaying and destructive effects of sin um, we can know that, you know, that's, a, that's our hope, you know, that this is, this kind of stuff is passing away. It's, you know, just like St. Paul says, you know, that, 
you know, our outer natures are wasting away, our inner natures are being renewed day by day. And he kind of compares, you know, he says, you know, the suffering and trials of this life are not worth comparing with the glory that is to come. And so, mm-hmm. you know, we, it's not that we abandon the world in this life, but we have that hope that, that the struggle we have with sin, the suffering uh, that comes, you know, just simply because of sin, um, you know, whether that, again, whether that be persecution or through war or just, you know, through sickness, so on and so forth, all of that is temporary. You know, it's only going to last for a time. And, and it also kind of gives, you know, the church a picture of like, this is, this is what awaits those who, um, you know, who remain, you know, faithful. I mean, that's, that's part of the message of revelation, right. Is to remain steadfast under trial and persecution. Right. And it, and it kind of gives you a picture is like, do you really, do you really want to sacrifice that? Like this great stuff for eternity, basically like this picture, you're like, do you really want to give that up? for some possible temporal relief of persecution or suffering? Wouldn't it be better to endure the suffering and persecution now, which is temporary, knowing that this is what your inheritance is? You know, so again, it's kind of that whole, you know, thing where Jesus says, you know, was it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but forfeits his soul, right? You know, and so it, and so we get this picture of the new heavens and the new earth and it's so much greater than anything we could have in, in this life or anything that we suffer in this life. And so it serves as a encouragement to, uh, to stand fast, to hold fast to Christ and to his word, to his promises, uh, no matter what happens uh, in this, in this life, um, because what is coming is so much better than what we could possibly imagine and i mean this reminds me of the song give me jesus by that line you can have all this world i don't know that can you sing it yeah (laughs) Uh, i i maybe could but i would probably butcher it no no (laughs) it really doesn't help us understand the song if you're just going to quote it it really the the emotion of it Uh, I would do it no justice right now. Maybe I'll link the uh, choir recording from when I sang that at Bible Bible College. Uh, I, with think, the choir, I think but... live and just heartfelt. Yeah, better. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not feeling it. <laughs> I want people to be left with a beautiful picture, not my moaning and howling. Uh, but, but you know, you can have all this world. Give me Jesus. Right is one of the lines in there and when you realize all this is fading away and corrupted and and it really won't provide for us in the long run anyway it's you can feel free to abandon it and certainly shouldn't pursue those things in life in fact i think that this should embolden us to live bravely and zealously as christians to get out of our comfort zone to be willing to go towards the battlefront to do what's hard because no amount of, you know, earthly peace or tranquility or, you know, um, riches or even delicacies or whatever is really going to provide for us in the long run. And so we could sit and just try to enjoy those as much as we could. But, and I mean, I love those things, but, but shouldn't this really give us a, a bravery to go to recognize that, you know, we could lose all this and we're going to get something infinitely better. And what we're fighting for is the salvation of people's souls. And if we let them out there, just kind of flounder in this world, they're going to die for all eternity. And I can put all of this on the line. I could lose absolutely everything. And it wouldn't matter for me because I'm just going to be blessed totally in the end. And so I can put it all on the line, but these other people that are out there that might die without knowing Jesus are going to lose everything for all eternity. And I should be willing to risk some temporal blessings, some temporal comforts to go out there and and hopefully share the message that might save these people. 
and allow them to be a part of these infinite blessings. Um, I, I hope that this shakes us from a sleep that we're in that, or, you know, or this, these priorities, we get so wrapped up in pursuing, you know, things of this world, like our career and our retirement and our sports accomplishments or our uh, popularity in school or um, respect at work or whatever it is. And, you know, just wanting to please our boss, please our um, customers and, uh, you know, make a name for ourselves. But none of that matters in the long run. All of those things, you know, those vocations that God gives us are for the purpose of blessing our neighbors, not for pleasing ourselves temporarily, right? And ultimately, we should be willing to you know, go to any length to see people saved from the coming judgment so that they can experience these blessings, the much better blessings for eternity. Matt, I feel like you had some really powerful things to say there, but I really couldn't pay attention because it had no musical quality to it. It didn't work. <laughs> oh, man. I'm, I'm saving it for the shower later. No, you're, you're right, though. There are so many. Anytime in scripture we see a call to, to like repent ourselves and believe, or we see a call to remain steadfast or or really anything like that. That's a, it's a call too to wake up and, and look to our neighbor. Um, there's a world dying around us that needs Jesus, that needs to hear, um, you know, it needs to hear where, where forgiveness and salvation are. We, we have that to offer. So yeah, good point, man. Even though it would have been better with singing, it was still okay. Well, let's take a look. So we kind of covered the first part of this. Let's take a look at the uh, the foundations of the city. Remember, once again, we're not talking about a physical city, but we're talking about the, the people of God, right? The Christians. I guess the Old Testament saints would be wrapped up in there too. So believers in, in God and in the promise. Uh, as we look at these foundations, we find that they're made out of a whole lot of precious stones, which we talked a little bit about. We saw the picture of already. Uh, but it reminded me of a of something that happened in the Old Testament. And, and after I share that, maybe one of you guys can figure out why it's like significant and important, because God doesn't just usually throw things out that match the, where there's no significance. But the, the jewels that are mentioned here as the foundations of this heavenly city, which is the, the bride of, of Christ, the people of God, right? It matches very, very closely the, the 12 jewels that are on the, uh, the breastplate of the, of the high priest. I pulled that up in um, Ezekiel chapter 28, and we'll read it real quick. Uh, starting in verse 17, you shall set in it four rows of stones, a row, a row of sardius, topaz, and carbuncle. I, if anybody finds a picture of carbuncle, I'd like to see that. Shall be the first row, and a second row of emerald, sapphire, and diamond, the third row of jacinth and agate and amethyst, and a fourth row of beryl, onyx, and jasper. They shall be set in gold uh, filigree. So a lot of a lot of similarities in those things that are on the the, the breastplate of the priest and the foundations of that of that city of the people of God there in Revelation. Um, but what what connection should we draw between those? two things is there any significance in that or is it just like a cool thing that god did the the stones on the on the priest's breastplate would um represent the the people of god the people of israel so every time the high priest uh would go before god whether in prayer or you know in making you know on the day of atonement when you go into the holy of holies he would always basically bear the people of god before the lord at all times when he is dressed in this. Um, and so, you know, again, we have that significant number of 12, right? And <clears throat> um, and we have 12 foundations, right? Stones. Is that right? Yeah, we do. Yeah. So, so this carbuncle, the picture that's being shown here, looks like it's a real deep, red 
uh, stone here. Is that how you guys would describe that? Yeah, I'm going to try to zoom in more, but I can't. Oh, there we go. Of course, now. Like that one was connected with the tribe of Levi? Levi, yep. Here, here's a better. This is a little bit closer. Here you go. That was the lefties, right? The left handed tribe. Am I thinking right? Now, is is the connection with those specific. gems there is that connection in scripture i'm not remembering or is that just like a fun pinterest thing or something from like tradition do you guys know i, I don't I, remember off the top of my head um I personally don't I, recall them being specifically connected. i know yeah i would tend to think not specific but um so so we have that connection of you know the 12 there the entirety of you know the people of god right which connects very well also back to that 144 um where is it going that okay so one of the things that we can see in the connection of the 144 and the 144,000 kind of you know that number being pictured of the of the church um you know kind of gives us the picture that the holy city the people of god is then the holy of holies right so if we remember in the in the physical temple the the innermost room was the holy of holies and the high priest could only enter that room one day a year on the day of atonement that was where the ark of the covenant was where god placed his special presence right or his presence in a special way and now, you know, kind of the picture is that the people of God are the holy of holies. Why? Because God dwells in the midst of them, right? So we kind of have have these connections, you know, to various aspects of, you know, the worship life of Israel under the old covenant, which which makes a lot of sense in, in a lot of ways because, you know, God told Moses when he set all this up, you know, basically he showed Moses what it looked like in, in heaven was kind of the, the idea. And Moses was to make copies of those things um, for use on earth. And so it makes sense that there would be all these kinds of connections. And then the new heavens and the new earth, we, we kind of see the, you know, the fullness of it. And so it gives us the picture too, that, 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 which was, um, you know, physical under the old covenant was picturing something beyond itself. And so, you know, sometimes we get caught up in the the physical buildings and the particular, you know, rituals and so on. And sometimes we, we think that that's, they're kind of the end, the be all end all. And it's like, no, they're, they're meant to image something greater than themselves. And so, um, so we have these connections all over the place too. So as the, you know, the high priest bore the people of Israel, the people of God, you know, before the Lord in his priestly duties. So Christ does the same, right? He um, carries us before the father as, as it were, he is our, our mediator, our high priest, our intercessor. Right. And then, you know, the people of God pictured in those 12 stones then shows up again here in Revelation as part of the foundation of that city. And so um, we kind of get a picture then, once again, of this city being the people of God, the people of faith, whether they lived under the old covenant or the new. So if that makes some sense. I would so guess. I kind of wonder, uh, going back to your question, just I don't mean to derail where you're going with this, but <clears throat> with the being designated for the tribes, if you look at Exodus 28, this is where the initial designs are given for the breastplate and all of the priestly garments. And uh, before it mentions the stones on the breastplate, there are to be on 
I think it's on the shoulders. There's to be two onyx stones and the engraved on them are the names of the sons of Israel. And I think it's like six of their names on one side, six of their names on the other stone on the other side. And they're um, to be listed in order of their birth. And then later when the stones are mentioned, um, like in verse uh, Exodus 28, verse 17, uh, they're set in four rows. Um, and uh three in each row and so maybe what people have done is kind of set that out and then try to figure out by birth order how they would have been designated um with that and so that's probably how people thought that those should should be assigned um but uh yeah very beautiful picture of those uh, the setup of all of that in the robes so all of that too, by the way, is not to make the priest look super awesome, but really to be symbolic of, of what God was doing there. And, and so isn't it wonderful to think of the, the people of God being brought by the priest before the Lord and to think of Jesus as our high priest. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah. And you get that same kind of picture too, like with the incense, um, like, burns on the altar of incense is the the prayers of the saints before god right and so so again we get all these kinds of visual pictures and you know the the whiteness of the garment of the priest you know speaks of you know the purifying work of god on behalf of you know his people just like you have the you know the blood spattered all over the altar you know, big bloody mess, right? I mean, like it's a lot of blood and it just kind of stands as a testimony to, you know, the messiness of sin, right? And what it takes. And that was just a picture. I mean, that was just, you know, animal blood, you know, and, you know, how the priests would, you know, wash his garments and these kinds of like all these kinds of things testify to the work of God of sanctifying his people of purifying his people of, you know, again, like we said, with, you know, even embodying in the priest himself, the picture of Christ's work as priest of burying the people before the Lord, you know, and, and interceding on their behalf, you know, I mean, this is what Zechariah um, father of John the Baptist, this is what he's doing. He's high priest that year, right? And it's as he is praying in his high priestly role that God sends the angel Gabriel to Zechariah and he tells him, your prayer has been heard and answered, right? And a lot of times we think, oh, that must just be, you know, Zechariah's prayer for his barren wife. Well, certainly he would be praying, you know, for that, but it's but it's so much more than that. Like as high priest, he is praying on behalf of the people of God, that God would save his people, that he would send his Messiah. Right. And that's what God is saying. Your prayer for Messiah, your prayer on behalf of the people as high priest has been heard. And part of that answer is you're going to have a son because he's the forerunner to the Messiah. Right. And so, <clears throat> so all of this is enacted visually you know with all of the senses like even with the you know the the priests eating the portions of the sacrifices that were you know the holy food right and god communicated his holiness to the priests through the eating of the food and and we see that too with the with the people of god in general like with the passover and so on they they were to eat of this food right and so all of these things you know God has built into all of them pictures and testimonies of what is going, of the reality of what is going on. And Christ is the fulfillment of, of those things. So it makes perfect sense then, you know, that, you know, Christ gives us himself to eat and drink in the Lord's Supper, right? And, you know, that, you know, he is our high priest that, you know, he gives us, uh, holy baptism and he washes us clean you know and this is also why too you know um 
in many uh, Lutheran churches and others. This is why, you know, the pastor may wear a, a white robe because it testifies to the cleansing and forgiveness of sin, the um, Christ's righteousness covering us, right? And so, and so we see through all of this, we see all these fantastic pictures, right? And then we get the fullness of it in the new heavens and the new earth. It all kind of comes together and the pictures disappear and we have the full reality of it. So it's kind of a neat thing. I don't know if I maybe went off on a rabbit trail with that, but anyways. I'm glad you pulled in uh, vestments for today though and kind of compared them to the what the what the priest would wear a little <laughs> bit and how it wasn't to make the priest look fancy, but instead was to communicate something. So I'm glad you pulled that in because a lot of in our churches, we have a lot of different traditions, right? I wore clerical collar like Ben is wearing um, at one service, one time. Good Friday freaked everybody out. That was my goal, though. Like Good Friday is supposed to be uncomfortable. You're remembering that Jesus died for you. That was my point. Um, You know, and Ben, I think you do the whole vestments like all been stolen, everything, right? But when you see a pastor that's dressed like that, it's not because they think they're important or better than anyone else. It's to communicate biblical truths. It's to communicate the, the forgiveness of Christ, what Christ has done. It, it's a beautiful thing. So if you don't understand what the vestments are and you show up at a church where a pastor is wearing vestments, hopefully he can explain it to you because it's it's good stuff. Yeah. And then you just say, too, that's that's really kind of the foundation and basis for um, the church's liturgy throughout the the centuries and millennia has been, you know, seeing how these kinds of things were put in place in the old Testament, not saying that, uh, you know, we have all of the same things, but that principle that, you know, Moses was making copies, God told him to make copies of the heavenly things that he, that he saw and emphasizing the connection between heaven and earth in in worship but we also see that in the book of revelation as we've gone through this too we see you know the saints in white robes we see an altar with incense burning and so some you know some churches will use incense um for that purpose to represent the the prayers um of the saints but anyhow um that's that's the intent of those kinds of things um is to, re- to reflect these these truths and so yeah Mm. Okay. Next thing we see here in uh, Revelation chapter 21 is verse 21. We've got the 12 gates um, of the city, each one fastened out of a pearl. Um, I think we can pretty confidently, just, just because it's happened to every other 12 or multiple of 12 we've seen so far, we can be confident in saying that these 12 pearls are representing the fact that it is the full people of God, right? Mm-hmm. Do we want to add anything uh, special about the pearl in this situation, or is it enough just to take that kind of big picture thing with, with these gates? Um, I guess we, we could just note that, you know, like in Isaiah uh, 54, you know, God promises that the gates of the restored Jerusalem would be precious jewels. So that would fit very well with, uh, with pearls, um, you know, even though they're not specifically mentioned by name in that text, you know, we would certainly be uh, legitimate in making a connection to those things. Now, I suppose we could, you know, maybe draw some connections to, you know, like the, the pearl that was so, you know, valuable, you know, that the, the man, the merchant who is Christ in the parable uh, sells all that he has to gain that pearl. Um, but I don't think we have to go too crazy far with it. I think, I think it's pretty easy to make a connection between precious jewels and pearls and we can understand that, you know, and that fits perfectly with what John has been doing this whole time too, as he's a very old Testament guy. So I think that one's pretty easy to understand. Mm-hmm. And so the idea with that then would be that Jesus is the man who gave up everything for that pearl, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and that helps us interpret that parable. <clears throat> because sometimes we get that backwards. Like we should be the ones who give up everything. And maybe there's a little bit of uh, 
oh, secondary message to there's that. A, there's a ton of truth to that. Is our salvation yeah. worth everything we could give up? Absolutely it is, but Absolutely. that's not how it works. But can, right? we, <laughs> can we gain our salvation? No. We have no. Right. So the first time I properly right. heard that parable taught, I think my head literally exploded. I think my nose just started bleeding instantly. I was like, whoa, Jesus did give up everything. That's amazing. Yeah. And I'm the pearl. That's so good. Yeah. I think life, some people react to that because they because they think, what I can't say that I'm the that I'm the pearl, that I'm the oh. treasure in the field, but but that's that's exactly it. You know, God has considered us so valuable to himself, not because not because we have that value in ourselves, but God has placed that value right. on us. He loves us so much, you know, that he was willing to pay everything that he had in order to gain his people. And, you know, and those, those two parables are parallel to each other. Um, they go right next to each other. And the common factor in both of them is the one who gives up everything to gain that which he desired. And so, yeah, the only way it properly works is if it's Christ who does that, because we have no way of gaining the kingdom of God through our own efforts or sacrifices or anything like that. And I think some, some, I dare I say bad preaching that's been legalistic and based on works righteousness that appeals to our sinful nature has used that, that parable to proclaim this, legalistic works righteousness where you all have to give up everything to gain uh, salvation. And unfortunately that interpretation has been very popular because it's, it makes sense to our worldly mind, natural mind, but, but the way of God is so different and it's a way of grace and the one giving is Jesus. And so, and it's beautiful too, because we can make this connection. I think, strongly i we can make this application because here it also lines up so not only is it how jesus was teaching in the parables but here this city is god's people then he's dwelling there with them and these stones that are the foundations of it which again connect with the stones on the breast of the priest which represented god's people there so we have got god dwelling with his people these stones these pearls they are the ones that are precious to him. Jesus purchased them. We now see them showing up here again, um, and they are going to be dwelling in the presence of Jesus for eternity um, because he's won them. He's paid for them. They are his, and, uh, and they will be, because they're foundations, they are there, stable, solid, forever. They're going to be there. That's a, a picture of peace and security um for god's people in god's presence i would just like to say if your mind also exploded as you heard the parables talked about that way after you clean up the bloody nose go read the good samaritan and see how beautiful that is from a different perspective it's it's yeah it's life-changing yeah, stuff the, when you get it right when you yeah. figure out how the good samaritan is yep that's right and and when you rightly understand the what we call the prodigal son. You understand the focus is on the father and the father is the Christ figure, you know, same thing with the, the lost sheep and the lost coin and the uh, unrighteous servant. Um, I forget the technical term uh, title given, given to it, but there in Luke 16, um, the, the servant that cooks the books um, when you understand that rightly and you understand what's going on, yeah, it's like, oh, awesome. <laughs> so, yeah, there's a lot that, I mean, we could, we could work that series in some time too. With I our, think we should. With our podcast, we could go through the, the <clears throat> parables because a lot of times they are uh, misunderstood in that way. And we could look at Christ in the parables. So, anyways. <laughs> I love it. All right, so let's finish off verse 21. We are starting to run a little low on time. I'm starting to get scared. We won't finish chapter 21 today. Uh, the end of verse 21, we find that the streets of the city were pure gold, like transparent glass. We also uh, skipped over the fact that the city itself is pure gold. 
like transparent or clear glass. Um, what should we take out of the city itself and its streets being pure gold that's so pure that it's clear? Well, if it's pure gold, that's gold that's been purified and refined by fire, right? And the the dross, the corruptions have been removed. And that's a beautiful picture of what happens to us when we're saved, right? That God puts us through this testing, refining fire, and uh, we come out the other side with all impurities removed, and we are now uh, righteous and holy and pure. And I think, and it's a beautiful thing too, because that's also the way that God created mankind to begin with. And in his recreation, he makes mankind one once again to not not only be pure, but to be very good. Yeah, I think that's transparent is- glass. I don't know what to do with that. But oh, I you know what I think we could do? Because I, I think you hit it right on the head going through that that refining process. You think of transparent glass as, as in the same way you'd think of like, though my sins are like scarlet, they've been made as white as snow. You, you think about it as the, the purity and the clarity and there, there's nothing there's nothing left that's corrupting or evil or wicked or wrong. Like it's been completely refined until it's until it's completely clear so much so you can even see through it. It's not what we think of when so, we think of glass, but when we think about refining and purifying, it matches yeah. that. I suppose if glass is cloudy, that's definitely not ideal, but it's it probably reveals that there's problems or blemishes or impurities in it, right? Natal, didn't you have a family member that made glass stuff? My dad uh, sold glass for pharmaceutical companies, but never. Uh, I mean, I've I've witnessed glass blowing. It's fascinating, um, and I've watched them melt sand down into glass but never done anything myself yeah so maybe one of our listeners knows more about this than we do but uh yeah probably again a symbol of purity and having been refined and made well you know beautiful thing about glass though i watched something about recycling glass and the cool thing about it is that like no matter how dirty it is and I could have wrappers and glue and all sticky stuff and all whatever in you know in the glass. If it goes through that um, recycling process and it's uh, it's cleaned and burned and, and melted, it can all be totally restored and made new again um, through that process. And um, it basically can last forever and be remade as many times as you want. It seems but it, it's like it, it's totally broken down to its base elements and, and then restored and made completely new again. All right, well, let's roll into the last bit here. Verse 22, uh, John says that as he looks around the city, he sees no temple for the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And 23, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb. Uh, So just in the same way that swimming is not allowed in heaven, we also don't have a sun and a moon because Jesus. Is that right, Ben? Did I get that right? Wait, wait, wait. Why isn't swimming allowed in heaven? Because there's no sea. Heresy alert. What? There's Um. no sea. We'll we'll get to that in a minute. What about the river? (laughs) We haven't gotten there yet. Um, So so there's no temple in the new heavens, new earth, right? Um, Because God, the lamb, is the temple, right? So so here we see, you know, kind of the, the completion of the picture, right? So we had, you know, the tabernacle later the temple right and those pointed us to you know christ himself you know god with us he is you know god in human flesh right by extension we are the temple 
of God, the dwelling place of God. And so it makes perfect sense that then in the new heavens and the new earth, there, you know, there's no need for any, uh, for any temple because the whole point of the physical temple was to point us to the reality of, of Christ and God dwelling with his people. Um, that was its purpose. Um, and it's interesting to think about, you know, here's a thought, you know, cause God kind of, in a sense, hid his glory in the temple, right? There, there was a reason why there was a heavy curtain that blocked off the Holy of Holies, right? Um, because God's glory is deadly to sinful human beings, right? That's why Moses could only see just a little picture, right? But what's interesting is that that's different now because of the resurrection and the purification. There's no longer any sin. And, and it seems like kind of the picture we get, again, uh, a Chronicles of Narnia uh, reference, if you guys remember our listeners have, are familiar with those uh, books. And I remember in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, as they got closer and closer to uh, the borders of Aslan's country, the light got more and more intense. And under normal circumstances, they couldn't handle that. But as they drank of the water in that area, they were able to tolerate the light. And so it seems like it's kind of a picture of what's going on here with, with sin purged from, from us, with you know, no longer being fallen creatures. You know, God's glory is no longer deadly to the creature. We can now look upon the glory of God and enjoy it because it's no longer deadly to us. Sometimes we think that, you know, that kind of in and of itself, you know, we can't see God's glory. Like he's just, you know, uh, but I don't think that's the sense that scripture gives to us. I think, I think the, the idea really that is given, you know, is that the reason why, God has had to veil his glory is because of our sinfulness. So in the new heavens and the new earth, because there is no more sinfulness, um, we can see God in his glory, you know, probably not in the truly in the fullest sense, because God is so far beyond us, but we can see his glory. We don't, he doesn't have to hide it or veil it. And, and so we kind of get this picture of, you know, John speaks of it as not needing sun or moon because God's glory is so bright. And, and just to make a note about that, John is not telling us how things will be uh, astrologically arranged in the new heavens and new earth. He's not, his point isn't to say, oh, there, there isn't going to actually be a sun or a moon. Just like when he says the sea is no more, he doesn't mean there won't be seas in heaven. When he says the sea is no more, he's talking about there's no more chaos, there's no more sin, there's no more evil. Yeah, Mike. Um, yeah, Mike. <laughs> and so he's not he's not telling us how you know how God will arrange the new heavens and the new earth. I mean, it's it's very reasonable to think that because God is restoring his creation uh to what it was before the fall and so on, um, to what it was supposed to be. You know, there was sun and moon and stars and so on before the fall. There's no reason to think that. Um, that those things won't be in place anymore either, because there's nothing that's inherently bad about those things. Um, so when we have this picture of the new heavens and the new earth, we can we can have, by way of analogy, just kind of think of all the different things that we see now and just try to imagine those things without death and decay and so on. But the, the creation that God made himself in itself is good. Um, and so there's no reason... There'd be no reason uh, other than if God chose to do things differently, but there's, there's no reason that would compel us to say that it will be uh, significantly different in its organization in that, in that sense, you know, like, you know, we have every reason to think that there will be, you know, the kinds of plants and animals and so on and so forth uh, that we see now in the new heavens and new earth. Um, but without the, you know, the disease aspects without the, you know, that we think about, you know, in this age, God tells us specifically in scripture that he placed into uh, the creatures he made a fear of man, right? Otherwise they'd be wiped off the face of the earth <laughs> or we would die more often because they wouldn't be afraid of us. <laughs> 
um, but but we get that picture of the new heavens and the new earth, you know, there isn't going to be this danger anymore, right? So so anyways, uh, John's point is not to say, hey, this is how things are going to be, you know, physically arranged in heaven, but his point is to emphasize that, you know, God is in the presence of his people and his people will be able to see his glory without their destruction. And that will be a pretty fantastic thing. You know, Peter, James, and John got a little glimpse of it in the transfiguration. Moses got a little glimpse of it on Mount Sinai. You know, the day is coming. We get to see the fullness of it. And that's pretty cool. I don't, I don't know if you picked up on this or not, but uh, Ben 100% said that your favorite pet will be waiting for you in heaven. He said that. <laughs> don't put words in my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted Sweet to, I, wanted, I had to end on just a little bit more heresy. I didn't get enough in. Uh, <laughs> oh, and you could, uh, you guys could email Mike and tell at God's word during exile at gmail.com. And let him know if you think cats will be in heaven. And then you can, uh, maybe Matt will respond to that heresy. Well, I think we should just put up a poll (laughs) on our Facebook page. Will cats be in heaven? I'll just say, you know, there's no movie called All Cats Go to Heaven. And I'll just leave it at that. (laughs) Well, if we haven't gotten any hate emails yet, we are definitely teeter-totting. I sure hope it happens. I'm ready for the hate mail. All right, Ben, will you close us up in prayer today? Yeah, for sure. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, thanks uh, for another day that you've given uh, to us, and thanks for the time that we can spend in, in your word and contemplating as best that we can um, the wonder that will be uh, the new heavens and the new earth. And indeed, you tell us in your word that it will be so far beyond what we can imagine or comprehend Um but you give us little tidbits to kind of whet our appetites for it and kind of impart, understand some of, of these things. Um, and so uh, we thank you that you have, uh, that you have that inheritance for your people. Uh, we pray that this uh, picture of the new heavens and the new earth would indeed uh, serve to uh, encourage and strengthen uh, your saints here on earth in this age uh, to stand against uh, stand up under persecution or trial or suffering knowing that you know though uh, this world is passing away uh, we have the new heavens and the new earth to look forward to Um, and so thank you for your kindness and your goodness and giving us far more than we could possibly imagine in jesus name we pray amen Amen. Thanks, guys. See ya. You know, I'm ready for hate mail, and you know why? Why? Because it doesn't come to me, it goes to Mike. So I'm super ready and excited.